is here. You know, the king, he was already here, right? Through chapters 1 and 10, he's already there. But this is him finally presenting himself as the king of Israel, the ultimate king. And, you know, we're going to be sending out devotionals uh, this week, Passion Week, Monday through Friday through Saturday, I believe. And um, each devotional will focus on what happened that day in the life of Christ. And so today's would be this very incident that, ha- that Mark records for us in chapter 11. And I think one of the things that you'll kind of see as you go back and look at this episode and read the rest of the gospel records throughout this week, and you're going to find that the title that you have in your Bibles just doesn't quite fit, right? If you take in the full scope of Passion Week, it doesn't quite fit the surface of things right? because of Good Friday, right? because of what his people do to him, the very people that he came to save. It's not very triumphant at all. Even on the surface, the features of it are not quite triumphant. In fact, ultimately, it is quite tragic. It is quite sad. But, here's the turn. There is a triumph, right? There is a triumph that's hidden underneath the kind of rejection and the scorn and, and the way in which Jesus comes in. There is a triumph Most of the crowds ultimately miss it, and even his disciples, John 12 tells us, don't quite get it until later. And so the call for us is really not to miss it. Like, it's easy to get. You know, we see the verse, we understand it, we know what's going on, we know the significance of it, but do you really get it, right? Do you see it, but do you really, really see it? So let's take a look at this text. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Mark 11, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they, went away, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their, colts, uh, threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Please be seated. Mark is very understated. Mark is uh, very concise. Mark just kind of, you know, gets to, the, gets to the business. And the way that he even writes this kind of highlights where we're going uh, in this passage. And I want to look at this passage from three views or three angles, if you will. The first is Jesus, king of the scene. He's the king in charge. He's in total control of what's going on. Number two, he's the king on the donkey. What does that mean? And number three, what are the implications of this 
for followers of this king. King of the scene, king on a donkey, followers of the king. We want to take in how Jesus presents himself here. And we want to grasp its significance at the end for our lives. So number one, point number one is the king of the scene. He's the king in charge. And two things we need to notice to fully appreciate who Jesus is. First, as king right, of the scene, Jesus claims that he's the Messiah prior to coming into Jerusalem. right? And why is this significant? Well, when you get to uh, the previous passage, when you get to uh, Mark 11, and you have gone through the healing of Bartimaeus, uh, 46 to 52 in chapter 10, the, the blind beggar Bartimaeus there calls out two times, son of David, son of David. And everyone's like rebuking him and telling him to be quiet and get away. And Jesus, when he says that, what does he respond with? What do you want me to do for you? As in, I am the son of David. As in, I am the king. I am the Messiah. And this is very pivotal here as he enters Jerusalem because this is the first time, first time that Jesus publicly takes up the title of Messiah to himself. Publicly. All right? And he's always had it, but publicly he's saying, I am the king who's come into your city, my city. All right? So Mark, especially in his gospel, is always quick to kind of contr- to show how Jesus is controlling the press about himself. He doesn't go public too soon. Right? Constantly people are trying to make him king before the right time, right? before the appointed time, before he says, the hour has come when I must be glorified and the Father must be glorified. So, you know, they always want to do this because it always happens right after a miracle. After something powerful has happened, his disciples and the crowds are always trying to like, kind of basically bring the kingdom down by violence, by force. And Jesus would have none of it because he's on a timetable. He's the king of the scene. And now that he's got his face set like flint towards Jerusalem, right? It's, it's cross or bust. And he's coming right into Jerusalem, right into the heart of legalism and Phariseeism, right to the very people who would kill him. He says, yeah, what do you want me to do for you? I am the son of David. Right? He accepts the title. He says, I am Messiah. I am the ultimate king. This is the home stretch. It's bottom of the ninth, right? And what he's doing, he's, he's forcing the hand of everyone, the crowns, the religious leaders. He's forcing their hands and he's saying, you either crown me or you kill me. Jesus is every, bringing everything to a head. Secondly, as king of the scene, he orchestrates, you notice, he orchestrates every detail of this scene. Like there's not one thing like that that escapes his detail. Like he's the perfect wedding coordinator, perfect whatever, you know, coronation coordinator, if you want to call him. Every last detail is here. Mark devotes six verses to Jesus talking about the colt, the donkey, it's the same word, getting the colt, what the what the people standing around are going to say, what you should say back to them, and the fact that they will let you go when you say the Lord has need of it, he'll bring it back here immediately. He's in total control of the scene, right? He's in total control. And, you know, he sends two of his disciples, uh, most likely it's Peter and John, we don't know exactly, but that's a good guess, into Bethany, probably, to get a donkey. And why is he getting a donkey, right? Why not a big horse? Why not a chariot, Right? Why not Alexis? Why a donkey? Because David and Solomon rode on a donkey when they were crowned as king of Israel. So what is Jesus saying? Again, I'm the king of Israel. But you know what? 
Something greater than David is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. The true Messiah of Israel, your deliverer is here. And so he instructs his disciples and everything just kind of just happens. Just at his word, all the details fall into place. And by doing this, by commanding his disciples to strangely take someone else's horse, right? And to take this donkey, sorry, not a horse, take this donkey, what he's doing is he's kind of stirring up the crowds in Bethany and Bethphage in that area on the Mount of Olives. He's stirring them and he's going to bring them with him, right? For a presentation fitting for a king. And also those in Jerusalem, we hear in other gospel records that those in Jerusalem heard that the man who raised Lazarus from the dead, this prophet, this Messiah, only he could do something like that. He is coming into town. So you have crowds flooding out of Jerusalem from the east and then coming down from the Mount of Olives and they're all gonna converge right in the middle as Jesus comes riding in on a donkey as the king of Israel. He doesn't just commandeer the, the donkey, he commandeers the people, the crowds. He's in charge. And what he's doing again is bringing everything to a head and forcing the hand, especially, now think about it, right? He's going to Jerusalem especially of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes. And what he's saying is this, you have to accept, accept me as I am. Crown me or kill me, but you can do no other. There is no third option. And as all this is going on, it's funny because John 12 tells us, again, the disciples don't quite understand the significance of it. Although Jesus is fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, a very clear, distinct messianic prophecy Behold, your king is coming riding on a donkey, the foal of a, of, the foal of a colt. I mean, it's like, can you make it any clearer? They see it, they know it, but they don't know it. They don't see it. Right? But he does. He's in charge. He's totally in control. Right? He's the king of the scene. Now, we get to the heart of the issue here. All right. He's the king on a donkey. Right, he's the king on a donkey. And this is really forcing the hand of the people, religious leaders, and us. Right? You and me. Right, Mark, you know, if, you read, if you've read Mark, compared to the other gospels, it's the shortest, it's the fastest. He uses the word immediately a lot. There's no like, he doesn't spare any words. He just gets right down to business. Even the very end of Mark, uh, people, there's a debate whether or not it's authentic to the gospel. So it's even actually shorter than it really is probably. He's pretty concise, so every detail that he puts in here, I think you have to focus, you know, it gets heightened. And Mark is the only one that notes the end of the day. It's interesting. He's the only one. Luke, John, Matthew, don't talk about the end of the day. They go right into the, the, the temple cleansing in verse 15 here, or uh, the cursing of the fig tree, but they do not talk about the end of the day. All right? So why is it here? Right? Whenever you see a detail that's different from the other detail, you gotta ask, what's going on? Right? Well, some people, you know, you can say, Jesus, as it says there, he's really just scoping out the scene of the temple, right? He's taking it all in. He sees what's going on in the temple, and the next day he's gonna curse the fig tree and clean the temple. And it's all a part of his timetable. He's on schedule, he's the king, right? And I think that's certainly part of it. I, I think that has a lot to do with it. But 
I think we don't, want to, we don't want to miss this. There's another part to this, and I believe what you are getting here in this kind of anti-climax, right, where just verse 11, he looked around, he went home at night, the end. Like, what? What just happened? What happened to the ticker tape parade, right? right? What happened to the championship? What happened to the fanfare? Where, where are all the crowds? Aren't they going to crown him? All this surge of emotion and activity, And I think what Mark is saying is, this is a little preview of what's going to happen five short days later. Good Friday morning, same crowds. Let's say, Hosanna in the highest. Here's our king. Here's the coming kingdom of our father, David. Five days later, they say, crucify him, crucify him. Why did they turn so quickly? What's going on here? I mean, why why does the air just come out of the room? Total like fizzle at the end. Right. Let me try to illustrate this. You ever uh, plan out a vacation like down to the T? Like you have everything set, and you know you have months in advance, and you are just dying for this. You need this vacation. Your life depends on this, and you plan it all out, kind of like a wedding, right? You plan it all out, and then everything looks great. And then when you get there, you realize Expedia lied to me. You know. <laughs> VRBO lied to me. This owner in this email, with all the details that he sent, conveniently left out, oh, that the heater doesn't reach to the other half of the house. Oh, and by the way, there are raccoons outside at night. So if you hear weird bumps in the night and them foraging in your trash, don't be alarmed. Or if you hear weird squeaks and screams and squeals outside, it's okay, it's just them. Right? I mean, you ever had, like, you, you thought it was going to be a resort, you thought it was going to be four stars, and you end up being one star? Right? Ever wait for something so long, and then you get it, and then it's like, eh, you know? And that's kind of what's going on here. Like, eh, all right. Well, he is the Messiah, but what, you know, okay, now what? Um, <laughs> take that disappointment, and you multiply it by about a million, and it would start to approach what's going on here and what goes on throughout the rest of the week. Imagine, put yourself in the shoes of a Jew at this time. They've been born and raised and totally bred on the fact that the Messiah, when he comes, it's going to be in power, it's going to be in glory, he's going to do amazing things, and he's going to restore, restore politically the nation of Israel back to its former glory. There's not going to be just any kind of a revival, but the kingdom of Israel, as it was under David and Solomon, will be back exactly and better than it was. And so they believe that the kingdom is going to come, they're going to get the land, they're going to get success, they're going to get peace from foreign enemies, all the Gentiles will be purged out of the land, we don't have to deal with any of these foreigners and dogs anymore, it's just Israelites partying it up. They believe that they are entitled to this. That's the problem. Right? Because they're God's chosen people. In John 12, which is the parallel version of this, it says that the crowd that goes out to meet him, they really go out to meet him because they hear, oh, he raised Lazarus from the dead. This is a messianic sign. This is an amazing, powerful thing. So they go out to meet him. And yet 20 verses later in John 12, John notes, though Jesus had done so many signs before them, before the crowds, before the people, they did not believe him. They rejected him. 
They wanted him to be a conquering hero. They get it. You're on a donkey because you're saying you're the king of Israel. We get it. David did it. Solomon did it. But you're supposed to be the greater David. You're supposed to be the greater Solomon. What's up, Jesus? Right? You're supposed to purge Israel of Gentiles. You're supposed to set up the earthly kingdom. What about all those promises of land flowing with milk and honey? What's going on here? And at first, I think, you know, at first, first day, day one, all right, everyone can have a misstep. Everyone's kind of okay, right? They don't kill him right then and there, right? It's okay, day one. But starting on day two, right, the very next day, verse 12, through, you know, and then verse 15, when the crowds and leaders, they start to suspect something is not totally right with this greater David, this greater Solomon. What is going on here? And all there, that exuberance, all that Hosanna turns to disappointment, turns to curse, turns to crucify him, crucify him. And by Friday, the Pharisees, they're so crafty, right? Legalists are crafty. Watch out for them. They're very crafty. And what they do is they they know that they're disappointed, so they press on that disappointment. They press on their easily moldable hearts, and they turn the disappointment into murderous rage. And Jesus is totally in control of all this. He can can come on a donkey, he can come walking, he can come whatever he wants. He's totally in control. He is forcing their hand. Worship me or reject me. Crown me or kill me. There is no third option. They expected more power, more signs, more wonders. Jesus take Jerusalem by force. And on all those beliefs and all those dreams, what does Jesus do? He splashes cold water and he jolts them out out of their dream. And he says, this is reality. This is who I am. This is your king come for you. And I have to come like this. And so with the king on a donkey, that's where it really begins. Right? That's, that's what we need to focus on. So consider for, for a moment just the fact of any king, right? Even David and Solomon choosing a donkey, right, back in 1 Kings. Even, um, even them, even human kings choosing a donkey. And then consider the Messiah, the ultimate king, choosing a donkey, right? And what does that signify? What does that mean? Zechariah 9.9, the prophecy Jesus is fulfilling here, it says, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. But he's humble. That's the key. Why is he humble? Because he's mounted on a donkey, on a colt. Not just a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah goes to very great, he goes out of his way to explain what kind of donkey this is, right? And he says, it's a foal. You know what a foal is? It's a baby. It's a baby donkey. This is not even a big donkey. It's a little donkey, right? And it's not even his donkey. At least when David was crowning Solomon, he goes, put him on the king's mule. That's my mule. I bet it was a grander mule, right? At least it was decorated, This mule is borrowed, all right? We don't even know who the owner is, and it's a baby, all right? Zechariah, the gospel writers, Jesus wants to emphasize just how radically different he is. He fails the eye test of what a hero should be. David and Solomon failed the eye test, but this is the greater David. This is the Messiah, and he fails the eye test of what a hero, what a conquering king should look like, right? Now think about it. Who rides a donkey? Have you ever ridden a donkey? I've never ridden a donkey, but I came close, or my son came close. Uh, you know um, Irvine, um, Irvine Park, Irvine Zoo? 
You know that place up on Jamboree? You see the horses going around, right? That's at Griffith's Park, they have it too. I don't know if they're donkeys. Maybe I should have done some research. But I know something. They're little, and they look like donkeys. And my son has been on those things a few times, right? And they're little, and they're nice, and they're slow, and they're kind of just going like this, probably because, you know, they're on a track all day. But the thing is, they're beasts of burden. <laughs> they're, they're peasant animals. They just carry stuff. You know, and they're stubborn, and they don't listen to you, right? Who rides on a donkey? Roman generals never, ever would catch themselves riding on a donkey. Julius Caesar never rode on a donkey, all right? Shrek has a donkey, all right? Shrek has a donkey. That tells you what kind of king Jesus is, all right? Eeyore is a donkey. You know, this doesn't make any sense. If you've, um, if you've read or seen Lord of the Rings, um, you, you should do both, but just go watch it tonight. You remember um, Gandalf's horse? How many of you remember Gandalf's horse? Shadow facts, right? Now, what's shadow facts? He is the greatest horse in the world, right? He is like the horse of all horses. And Gandalf, uh, you know, Tolkien actually calls it, says that this, you know, shadow facts is a horse perhaps from the earliest of time. You know, he doesn't even know when shadow facts, he was like this mystical ancient horse. And Gandalf in the movie calls to him, and one horse, you know, and he comes bounding out of the forest, and it's in slow motion. And all the muscles are rippling, and the hair is flowing, right? And he's perfect, like his coat is perfect, and I swear the horse has a smile on his face. <laughs> Just watch it, right? And the horse looks great, right? And that's a horse that's fit for, an, for the king of Israel, right? But what David did, what Solomon did, what Jesus did, he's saying, I'm not a Roman general, right? I'm not Julius Caesar, right? That, that's not who I am. That's precisely the point. And the Jews, they understand it. They know it. They know their history. They know their Bible, but it's not understanding that saves you, right? They get it, but they don't get it. They have eyes to see, but they do not see. And that is now on us. We must not miss the implications here of this fact of the king of Israel, the ultimate king, come riding on a borrowed baby donkey with a makeshift saddle. Right? And there are two implications of Jesus riding on a donkey. I just want to point out two. The first implication of the Messiah riding on a donkey, yes, he is not a Roman general. He's what Martin Luther called a poor beggar king. That's the first implication. Okay? He's a poor beggar king. You know, um, the upcoming wedding of the century, Prince William, Kate Middleton. I thought your wedding was the wedding of the century, but there's another wedding coming. <laughs> Sorry, I keep looking at you. There's another wedding coming. And apparently two billion people are going to watch it. So you should watch it too. <laughs> so my crack research team of my wife and Google <laughs> looked up some numbers, very important. Champagne will cost $60,000 at this wedding. All right. The food will cost $150,000. The flowers, the Morris sheet is in here, the flowers will cost $300,000. And they are spending over $30 million just on security alone. And guess, save the best for last. How much do you think the dress costs? Bok, how much did your dress cost? This dress costs $343,000. Oh, 400, sorry, I slipped the numbers. 
430, you know how much that costs in pounds? A lot more. <laughs> it's like $700,000, right? Times 1.5. I mean, they have, I found out that they have every celebrity's entrance timed to the exact minute. You know that? So they, they don't skip a beat. They're having rehearsals all week so that every detail is in place. Not one thing is missing, and everything has to be as luxurious and as glamorous and as fitting for the wedding of a prince as it can be. But not so with Christ. The one who should get all that and more, he doesn't get it. And he doesn't do that for himself. That's not how he presents himself. Right? See, nobody gets to the top and downgrades their status. Right? Nobody goes you know, from iPhone and back to their old, like, things that you have to press three times to, to type out a text. <laughs> Nobody like, goes backward in prestige. Nobody in the world does that. Kings and rulers and great men of the world don't do that, right? They don't deliberately choose to be a nothing and a nobody. I think all of our hearts is we just want to keep going up and up and up. How, how more can we enhance our lives? How can we make our lives better? But Jesus, I mean, he's the real king. The greater David is here, and he comes to enhance my glory. You get that? He comes for your glory and for my glory. He doesn't seek to improve his lot in life. He never seeks upgrades. He never inflates himself. He never stands on a pedestal and preaches down at people and condescends and stoops to get to their level. He does never, ever, there's not a hint of snobbery with him whatsoever. He always downgrades, in fact, right? He always goes from riches to rags, right? But we always loved what? The Cinderella story, right? Whether it's in the NCAA tournament, whether it's in a movie, whether it's in our own life. We're always fighting to get ahead, fighting to get to the top. But here's Jesus, a poor beggar king, right? The king of kings puts himself under us, guys, to make us better, to exalt us the only one with real riches. He has infinite glory, and what does he do? He empties himself of that glory and of those riches to make us rich, to make us glorious. He takes the form of a slave, Philippians 2.7, so that we could take the form of a king. That's the great reversal. The second implication of riding on a donkey is that Jesus is saying, I know what you want, but I am what you need. You want this kind of a king? You want this kind of kingdom? I'm not here to dethrone Rome. I'm not here to set up the physical earthly kingdom. I'm here to dethrone your sins, and I'm here to be king over your hearts. Okay. Too often we don't want to see it that way, even though Jesus is just fulfilling scripture here. And that's the problem, right? It's not that we don't understand the text and we have to figure it out. It's a jigsaw puzzle. No, it's all right there. It's very plain. You can read the Bible. You can read commentaries and theology books. And yet it still doesn't, doesn't make sense to the Israelites and it still doesn't quite click with us what this means, right? Because the irony the, is so thick here. The paradox is so thick about his character. We need to kind of just let this hit us and soak our hearts in it. Right? He's the king of kings on a borrowed donkey, right? baby donkey, makeshift saddle of cloaks. Like two of his disciples put their jackets on it, and he's riding that into town. And what's his entourage? Think about it. It's a bunch of nobodies. Right? It's a bunch of nobodies. A bunch of outcasts, the sinners. The people that everyone rejected, they follow Jesus. All the losers follow Jesus. 
And one, one commentator said that this is like this is high comedy here. And the clash of the high and the low. To have Jesus, the almighty king, on this kind of an animal with this kind of people and the crowds around him, is just, it's, not, it's just ludicrous. It doesn't make sense. But it does, and it should, because what he's saying is, pay attention to this, guys. Pay attention, Israel. Pay attention, Cornerstone. I'm the loser. I'm the greatest loser of all, actually. Right? Jesus' whole mission in life is to be the servant king, the loser king. Come to lose everything so that we might gain everything. Right? For our sins. That's why he came. Because that's what we really need. We might not think about that as what we really need. We might think, Jesus, I want this in my life. I want prosperity. I want success. I want you to take away troubles and trials. I want things to work out. The suffering is too much. Remove this thorn in the flesh, Paul says three times. And yet Jesus says, that's not what you really, really need. What I come to give you is what you really need. My sin, not in part, but the whole, the hymn goes, right? To take away. His immense loss for our sins leads to our immense gain. We get new life in Christ. That's all that we really need. So I say, and Jesus is saying, keep him just as he is. As he is, keep the paradox. Make it ironic. Let it be funny and comical. Because the more and more Jesus goes against us, the better it is for us. Because then we know that's a real king. That's the real ultimate king. To go against us and not fit in these neat categories and to go against our expectations and you know, to know us better than we know ourselves, that has to be the real king then. Otherwise, he'd just be one of us. He'd just be human. He'd just be Prince William. Right. He's not just another king. He's not just another teacher. He's not just another prophet or another miracle worker. He is capital T-H-E, the king. Right? And if he was just another one of those people, he wouldn't be worthy of our worship, would he? I think about it. Um, you think about any historical figure, any great historical figure, right? Or a great historical event. And it's never one-dimensional. It's never like, it's, you know, if it's one-dimensional, you don't really need to study it or read it, right? Um, this, this year marks the 150th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War, right? And because of that, Lincoln movies are coming out. Spielberg is working on a Lincoln movie with Daniel Day-Lewis and... Uh, another Lincoln movie just came out or is coming out, The Conspirator, about um, John Wilkes Booth, Mary, um, Mary Surratt. And um, all these books, writings on Lincoln, you're going to see more documentaries on the Civil War and Lincoln, and a few of you will eat it up and most of you won't, or all of you will eat it up. Somebody. Anyway, uh, if Lincoln was one-dimensional and easily categorized, right? You, you know, you don't, how many books, how many movies have they made about William Henry Harrison, Right? or Zachary Tyler, or President Pierce. See, you guys don't even know who that is. I don't even know who that is. I mean, who are these people, right? How many books have been written about James Garfield, right? I mean, Grover Cleveland, hello? No, we don't write books about them, right? But Lincoln is fascinating. Lincoln is something else. And great figures, Julius Caesar, all these, you know, they're, they're something else. They're worth studying about, right? He wouldn't be so worthy. So how much more with Jesus Christ? How much more with our Lord? I say keep him on that donkey, on that borrowed baby donkey, and let that go against us because it'll just cause us to trust him more and what not go by what we see, what we feel, and what we think. Right? 
You see, Israel wanted the conquering king, the greatest, the greater David. They wanted him to blaze in on a Kentucky Derby winner and take charge and set up the kingdom. But here's what they failed to see. Catch this. If Jesus come, if Jesus doesn't come to Jerusalem as her king on a donkey, then he comes to Jerusalem as her judge on a war horse. Because what they need is forgiveness of their sins. What they need is redemption. They need freedom from the bondage of sin. Revelation 19, 11 to 16, at the end of the world, Jesus is riding another horse. And it's not a borrowed baby donkey, I'll tell you that. It's a war steed, right? And he comes with a sword. And this horse is like breathing fire. And it comes in judgment against everyone who has rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, against everyone who is still enslaved in their sins. So you see how him going against the expectations, how that is all that we really need, this kind of a king. Um, by him coming here on a donkey, it's, it's actually the, the salvation of the world. Right? John 3.17. It's a sign that the king is mindful of our frame that we are but dust. Psalm 103. Right? It's, a, it's a sign that, yeah, he's a king, but he sides with those who are weak. Right? He He's numbered among the transgressors. He doesn't stand above us, although he is really above us and beyond us. He stands with us. That's why when he's born, they say, call him. His name will be Emmanuel, God with us, right? Not apart from us, not aloof, not cold. He calls us, Hebrews 2, 11 to 12, he unashamedly calls us his brothers. His humility is our exaltation, right? His weakness is our power, and his loss is our victory. So a poor beggar king on a borrowed donkey riding into his town to his death, that's exactly what we need. All right. Now, what are the implications of this for anyone who would come in his footsteps, anyone who would follow this type of a king? What does it mean for us? What's the significance? Mark 10:45. Jesus came to serve and not be served. Every other king comes to be served and not to serve. And he comes to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, to deliver us from the bondage of sin, to give us a new kind of life, a new way, not just of thinking, but of living, a whole new paradigm of life. He is the game changer, right? He is the paradigm bomb and he gets dropped right into our lives, right into the core of who we are and all that we think is good and true. And he explodes all of that. And he says, no, I, I don't come to tell you just how just you know just the way you want it. I come to tell you and disrupt everything and tell you this is how it ought to be now. You either crown him or you kill him when you encounter Jesus. And so I want to touch upon touch upon just three areas of impact that Jesus makes. Three areas. Right? If he's this kind of a king, what does it mean personally? What does it mean? Relationally, what does it mean culturally out in the world? Personally, relationally, and culturally. First, personal impact in your sanctification. Galatians 3.3, we just learned this not too long ago. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Is it your determination and is it your willpower that's at the center of your spiritual life? Or is it Jesus' determination and his willpower, his finished work? 
Um, is it your obedience that you're always worrying about, thinking about, focusing on, constantly thinking about what I need to do, what I need not to do, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to serve. Are you so strong then, functionally, that you don't really sense the need for him? Right. That you can, you can stand up to sin on your own. Instead, where the Bible says, stand firm in this grace. Not stand firm on your own two feet, right? Stand firm in this grace. Do you really believe that your life is a product of grace only or a product of a little bit of grace and a lot of your grit? Like 50-50. 50 percent spirit, 50 percent my flesh. Do you really, really believe that always prior to your work, your effort, your discipline is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, his work, his discipline, his will, his power in your life. Brothers and sisters, guys, you know, admission of failure is not a sign of weakness. Not admitting your weakness is a sign of weakness. That's the, that's the funny, that's the crazy thing Christ does to us. Right? Saying, I don't believe, it's hard to believe, help me in my unbelief, is not a sign of not having faith. That is actually a sign that you have faith, that you would confess it and repent like that before Jesus. That's the first step to actual growth. And so meditating on the weakness of Christ here produces a spiritual limp in our hearts where we are ever more dependent on the Spirit, ever more conscious of our need for Him in our lives, and ever more prayerful. How about in your self-image? How about in your self-image, not just your sanctification? Like, who do you identify with? Right? Do you identify yourself with the successful, with the strong, with the prosperous, with the mighty, with the rulers and the kings of the land, the have-it-all-togethers of the world? I think when we encounter Christ right here, what he does, he exposes just how much we want to make a name for ourselves. Right? We want, to, we, you know, we want a little bit of the glory. Right? We, want, we have that glory hunger inside of us. I mean, think about as an example, think about how crucial career is to you guys, to me, to all of us. Maybe especially the men, but I, I would say point out to everyone, think about how career is so crucial to your sense of uh, self-worth, your significance, like I am this, I do this, therefore I am worthy enough, right? But if that's the way you think about your life and yourself, it's, it's going to be spiritual, it's spiritual suicide, it's lethal, right? If you're always seeking to climb to the top, if your mindset is always advancement and promotions and you're just caught up in the rat race, you have to be the best, right? You know, that's, that's just survival mode. That's just social Darwinism and it'll lead to a great spiritual fall, right? It's really easy to compartmentalize humility and weakness like this. At church, I'm serving humility, weakness, lowliness, Evangelism, come graciously, come lovingly, do meet deeds of mercy, but in work, be strong, right? At work, don't fail. At work, you know, just go all out, be consumed by it, be number one, right? It's somehow okay to operate differently. And I'm not saying don't be excellent, right, guys? I'm not saying don't work hard. I'm not saying don't take a better job. That is not what I'm saying. We're talking about the motivations here. We're talking about what drives you. Or think about your children, parents. 
Do you want to make a name through them? Right? How often do we put pressure on our kids to excel and to be the best, to be number one? You know, I want my kids to be, you know, and I, and I have this. I struggle with this, definitely. I want my kids to be academically perfect, socially perfect, spiritually perfect. I mean, it's ridiculous, the pressures that we put on them, that I put on them. I want them to be extracurricular perfect, you know, like just have the best and be the best at everything in the world. Parents often struggle with that. But in the end, what do you gain? What do they gain? What are we teaching them about the centrality of grace in their lives? Right? Are we teaching them that they can, you know, teaching them that life is about being a self-made man or woman? Or are we teaching them that life is all about grace, that you are nothing apart from Christ Jesus? If you have this kind of glory hunger, let the glorious king giving up his glory so that we could have it. Let that reality free us from the hunger to make a name for ourselves. Number two, relational impact with family and church. I mean, this is, I think this is where it makes the most sense. I mean, or at at least it hits home to me the most when I think about it, because this is where I'm going to fail right after I preach this message. I'm going to go home and I'm going to fail this. I'm going to fail my kids immediately in this area. Because if Jesus relates to me on the basis of weakness, on the basis of sacrifice, for my ultimate good, then I have to. I have to relate to others in the same way. Right? So husbands, Ephesians 5, right? The good old text. Since Jesus sacrificed and became weak for me, I am now freed up not to serve myself, Not to say my agenda, my desires, my preferences. It's my will or nothing. Instead of that, I can lay all those aside and serve my wife, not just physically, although that's a part of it, but spiritually, to help her flourish and become all that God wants her to be. And all of our relationships right in this room, as we walk out of these doors, has to be about that, guys. If it's not about that, you know what it's about? It's about me going to you and just taking from you. It's me just going to you and say, I'm going to use you. Give me what I want. And so you know what happens? You avoid relationships where it's tough. You avoid situations where it's difficult. You always do cost-benefits analysis of whether or not that ministry, that service, that person is going to be worth it. Romans 12.10 says, though, in light of the mercies of Christ... All of my relationships are about what? It doesn't just say honoring others, but outdoing one another and honoring each other, blessing others and not using others like a consumer. This is what Jesus did, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Count others, think about it really, that they excel you in so many ways that if you really looked at other people's lives and you looked at your life, You would say, you are better than me in so many ways. You are a better father. You are a better wife. You are a better mother. You are a better Christian. You are a better worker. You are a better minister in the church. You really are. It's not just a mind trick that I'm playing. It's not me just saying it to myself so I can, you know, be humble or assume humility. No, if I really think about my life in light of grace, in light of the weakness of the king, I cannot help but turn around and lavish blessing on you and honor you because you know what? I am nothing and you really are better than me. But I fall so, so short of that, right? Do you? I don't really believe that. And so there is rivalry. There is conceit. We should love people 
our wives, our children, one another, the world, just because we love them for their sake, not for our own. Number three, then, the cultural impact. Lastly, out in the world, and I want to just touch upon one thing. If the king of the universe takes on the form of a slave, if the king of the universe comes into town riding on a borrowed donkey, he shows us that power is in weakness. That if you want to be first, you better get to the back of the line. You want to be the master, you better be the slave. That's the word there. You better be the slave of all. Right? True greatness lies in weakness. Think about Jesus' life. Go back this week and read the gospel records. Just even reading the gospel, reading Luke for 10 minutes, and you'll be stunned to see that Jesus, time and time again, is always on the side of the weak. He always sides with the people that got rejected. He touches the people he's not supposed to touch. He eats with the people he's not supposed to eat. Right? He goes to the homes of the people that you are never, ever supposed to. And he teaches the people that you are certainly not supposed to teach. He embraces them. He lifts them up. And he says, these are the examples of people who are in the kingdom. Be like one of these. Be weak. He's on the side of the powerless and the marginalized, the voiceless, the defenseless, the powerless. That's the diaconate ministry. That's the diaconate heart, right, guys? And that should be, should be, as we truly believe in Jesus more and more, that should be our hearts. And so when we encounter situations like this on the street, in front of a restaurant, in front of the movie theater, on the road, wherever and wherever God allows, we cannot seek to assign blame to these uh, blame to them, blame to people that come our way that are powerless and defenseless and say, "Well, you put yourself in that position, right? You made all the wrong decisions in your life. Therefore, you know, I'm not going to give you this. I'm not going to deign to your level." And the fact is, Jesus in that moment is saying, "Who do you think you are? Do you were you born into that family?" Were you born into Orange County? Were you born into all the privileges and benefits that come with where you are in your life? No. I don't have to stoop to go to their level, right? I see myself as nothing apart from Christ. I'm just a product of grace. And what that does is that humbles me to no end in sacrificial service for the good of others, for the defenseless and the weak and the powerless, whether it's in the church and especially, maybe especially in the world, it just flows out. And that's a platform for the gospel to be preached. Whatever I am and whatever I have must now be mobilized to serve those who cannot serve themselves because that's what Jesus did for me. You see the gospel logic there? That's what he did for me. Well, next week is Easter Sunday. The story gets better. <laughs> This is the descent into hell. And then you get the real hell on Friday, but then you get up from the grave, he rose again on Sunday. We celebrate Jesus as risen, as ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's full of glory and power, and he's returning in that same glory and power. And so maybe some of you are thinking that in, in light of that, we should celebrate resurrection more, the, 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 the risen Jesus. Why all this talk about the humble Jesus and the crucified Jesus and the lowly Jesus? Is it, aren't you pointing out a truth too much to the exclusion of other very relevant truths about Christ? In Revelation 5, 5 to 14, we get the future vision of what Jesus will be like for all eternity. 
And it's amazing. John, in his vision, he sees first Jesus as the Lion of Judah who has conquered. Powerful. But in the very next verse, and for three more times in that passage in chapter 5, he sees Jesus as the Lamb who was slain, right next to the throne of the Father. That's the seat of power, right? He's the Lion, and he's the Lamb. You see, he has to be both. If he was just the Lamb, I don't think any of us would worship him. If he was just the Lamb, he's easily dismissed, ignored. You can just kind of walk over him, walk around him. There wouldn't be awe, reverence, no need to fully and wholly submit ourselves to him and live our lives after him. But if he's just the lion, think about it, and he just tears us apart, he's scary. Slavish fear. We're always on eggshells. Don't, you know, don't anger the lion. Make sure that we do everything to please him, and hopefully he will bless us and not just judge us and curse us. But for all eternity, guys, for all eternity, he's the lion and he's the lamb, and we are going to be basking in that glory. Jesus is almighty, yet humble, beyond us out here, and yet one of us right in here. Do you really want to change that? Do you really want to alter the character of Christ at that point? I mean, can anything be better than having the lion and the lamb, the king who is a servant, love us, be our king, and rule over us? What kind of a rule and reign is that? That's a gracious one, that's a good one, and that's a powerful one. And so this day and this week, really, let this king, as he presents himself, let him into your hearts and let him change it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, that we would really see you as the lion and the lamb, that we would really believe that you are the servant king come for our good, that you are what we really need, even though many times it might be not what we really want. Father God, in light of the glory of Jesus Christ as the servant king, come on a donkey for us, the greater David, how, how can that not just humble us? How can we not but respond now in grateful obedience and submission to you? Thank you for coming like this. Thank you for not just being a great model of humility, but actually, Lord, producing that humility now in us, producing this kind of character in us, because that's what we want to be. We want to be like you, and ultimately we want to be with you. And now as we turn our attention to the elements and communion, help us to remember that you are a powerful, mighty God to save, and yet you are also the lowly, the humble lamb who was slain on our behalf. We thank you, we love you, in Jesus' name.